Okay. How's everybody doing tonight? Good? Uh, you'll have to excuse me yet again for the uh, status of my voice. Uh, last night I was screaming a lot uh, at the Notre Dame-USC game. Um, I had the pleasure of sitting in the USC section, and so I was actually sitting right next to the USC band. And uh, I knew that this was either going to be an awesome evening or the worst kind of evening possible. Because if we had lost, that would have been the worst place in the entire city to be sitting. Um, But of course, we ended up winning, and I got to scream my heart out in a good way and heckle the USC band. Uh, It was very mature, I promise you. Um, And I had an awesome, awesome time, and now I have no voice. So, I will sound like this for the duration of the sermon. But there's nothing better than watching Notre Dame beat USC. Am I right? Few things on earth compare to the pleasure of that. Uh, even more than Michigan, yes. I, I hate USC even more than Michigan. The, uh, the conversation Allison and I were having yesterday was that when you, when you become a Notre Dame fan, it comes with the territory that you must hate USC with almost the same amount of passion that you love Notre Dame. It, it's a, a hand-in-hand sort of a thing. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm proud to say that my wife also hates USC that much. So raise your hand if you like doing DIY projects, any kind of DIY project. A lot of us, yeah. Um, that can be crafts, it can be construction, it can be um, decorative, whatever it might be. Uh, the DIY culture in in the United States is very, very popular. Uh, The idea is we are better if we can do it ourselves than hiring someone else to do it. Um, Instead of hiring a mechanic to change your oil, you're a much better man if you change your oil yourself, uh, which I have still not learned how to do. Don't hold that against me. Um, Instead of ordering out every night, you're a much better parent or spouse if you cook your own meals. Uh, Every commercial that you see for Lowe's or for Home Depot encourages you to do work on your own homes. And and they even have classes that they'll offer that you can attend at Lowe's or Home Depot that will actually teach you certain things in order to uh, facilitate your DIY endeavors. Um, A few years ago, uh, the leaders in this market were people like Martha Stewart and Rachel Ray, and now they hang out with Snoop Dogg. But back then, it was all about DIY. Um, Now every girl in America has a Pinterest account. Uh, Some boys do too, myself included. Um, And so on Pinterest, you you build your dream boards and you get to work on every area of DIY that you possibly can. Um, Then you have TV networks like HGTV and the DIY network. Fun fact, HGTV and DIY are actually owned by the same parent company. Okay, so we might think that they're competing, but their parent company realizes that in a competing market, uh, rate, ratings are better. So both networks owned by the same company. HGTV a couple of years ago was the fifth most watched cable network. Uh, and then you have YouTube. YouTube is a media king that uh, also kind of displays the rise of the DIY culture. The fourth most popular category of video on YouTube is how-to, tutorials. You can basically find any sort of how-to on YouTube. Today, in fact, my wife was trying to figure out how to clean this, uh, this air purifier, and she was like trying to figure out how to take it apart, and her mom was like, why don't you just watch a video on YouTube? And so she found the information for cleaning out this household item, on YouTube. Come to find out, her mom also knew how to do it herself and didn't tell her, which was kind of a funny thing, but whatever. But on YouTube, you can find literally any type of DIY. You can find construction, you can find auto maintenance, cooking, makeup, even how to make recreational drugs in your own home. I have not watched any, okay? (laughs) Don't push me to it. So here's the thing. I'm not against DIYing at all. In fact, I think that it's very wise in many cases. A smart use of time and money and, and using creativity. Many times DIYing is a good uh, way to steward the resources that you have. 
and, and can be a fun way to pass the time. But there's one area where DIY should not be applied, and that is the area of our faith, DIY Christianity. Uh, you may not think at first that that's a thing, but it, it absolutely is. If you walk 10 steps into any Christian bookstore, you will find shelves on shelves of books that give you ways to improve yourself, to become a better person. Uh, you listen to any type of podcast online and, and you'll find sermons that give three easy application points to teach you how to do a better job of following the Bible. Many times Bible stories are taught from the perspective of you at the center and what the passage teaches about your life. Um, a, a few weeks ago when we were talking about reading and meditating scripture and we talked about studying and then application, we talked about the importance of finding out what the passage means first and only after that can we decide what it means for us. But many times we skip that and go straight to what do I think this means for me? So in a lot of ways, we've sort of lost sight of the fact that, that our faith is not about what we do. Our faith at the root is about what Christ has already done. And that's not to say that we don't have a role to play. We absolutely do. We absolutely should be seeking how to better follow after Christ. That's part of the purpose of this series. We ought to be obedient to God's commands and to search the scriptures for places where we need conviction, where the Holy Spirit needs to change us. But so many of us, whether we realize it or not, have begun to fall into a pattern of, of Christianity that is centered upon my power rather than the power of Christ in me. Examples include a mindset that tells us the better we do, the more God will love us. Uh, many try to earn God's favor by going to church or doing Christian things or following the Ten Commandments. Um, in particular, the series that we're going through on spiritual disciplines. If we're not careful, we can begin to treat those like ways to make God love us more. If I manage to read my Bible twice a day and pray three times a day and do everything else, maybe God will have more favor upon me. And we begin to try to do these things in order to earn that type of favor. And, and then the very next step that comes after that, at the, the dangerous mindset that's produced by that, is, is that it will lead us to believe that if we are good little Christians, if we do everything the way that we're supposed to do, if we obey God's commands, and we're not all like those other sinners, then it will bring us blessings that we have now earned. And then, when we don't get those blessings, we get upset because we didn't get the payout that we thought we would get. So, in this series, Opposite of Epic, we've been talking about these spiritual disciplines, right? Earlier this week, um, I was having a conversation with Allison, and she very wisely pointed out something, made me aware of something that I should have started this series with. This, this message should have been at the beginning of the series rather than in the middle. And that is that it is very easy to treat these spiritual disciplines like a checklist. It's so easy to look at these things like a checklist. Five easy steps to becoming a better Christian. Um, you may have noticed earlier in the week that I uploaded to our church Facebook page this graphic uh, for our sermon series that outlined the five spiritual disciplines that we'll be covering. And uh, I was trying to just give an easy visual. But then I got home and began to talk to Allison, and, and she said, you know, I see that, and I see what you're trying to do, but if you're not careful, it'll be really easy for somebody to look at that and say, here's five easy steps to being better. Especially if you are by nature a rule follower like she is. Five easy steps. Let's check this off. Let me do these things and I'm going to be a better Christian. Let me do these things and I'll be closer to God. Check, check, check. And she's right. If we don't have the proper mindset, we can view spiritual disciplines in completely the wrong 
way. The thing is, this is not about self-help. It's not about our own effort. It's not about giving us a magic formula to achieve some sort of spiritual greatness or success. The only way to properly view these spiritual disciplines is to view them with a heart that desires to be closer to the Lord, and these are simply ways that facilitate that kind of intimacy. These things are more or less just a vehicle to get what we really want, which is closeness with God. The desire of our hearts ought to be to want to be with Him, and to grow closer to Him, and to pursue Him more, to be more filled with His presence, and these things help make that possible. For those of you that are married or in any type of romantic relationship, I would assume that there are very few times, if ever, that you wake up in the morning and begin to think to yourself, all right, what are the five things I need to do today in order to have a good marriage? All right, I need to kiss my wife good morning. Check. All right, next I need to go and make her some coffee. And I go make coffee. And throughout the day, thinking of a checklist. Nobody does that. At least I don't. Hopefully you don't either. Hopefully you do those things for the purpose of being close to your loved one. It ought to be the same with God. You see, the Bible does not primarily lead us to ask the question, what must I do? But rather, what has God done? So with that in mind, we're going to look today at one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. The story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho. So as quick context, and you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. Quick context here. Prior to this, we had Moses. Moses was raised in Egypt, and then he goes out into the wilderness. He experiences the presence of God at the burning bush. God calls Moses to be the leader of Israel in the Exodus. Then we see the plagues in the Exodus as God leads them out of Egypt. Then there was the parting of the Red Sea. Then Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law. And during all this time, Moses had a right-hand man named Joshua. When Moses died, Joshua was commissioned as the new leader of Israel. And so Joshua leads the Israelites across the Jordan River in a very similar way uh, to the way that Moses led the Israelites through the Red Sea. And so now where we're going to pick up this story is we find them outside the high menacing walls of the city of Jericho. After all this time in the wilderness, they're finally at the edge of the promised land. They're almost there. And the only thing preventing them from entering is one giant insurmountable barrier. So, picking up in Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, and we're going to read all the way through chapter 6. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant 
And let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priest, who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early, At the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted uh, them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her, her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. Because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So, this story is, like I said, one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. This is a story that has um, inspired many songs, many kids' stories, many types of movie and video. Uh, My personal favorite is the VeggieTales version of this uh, particular story. Anybody seen this one with the, the, the grapes that are on the wall yelling at the Israelites and throwing slushies at them? Um, inspired, of course, by Monty Python's quest for the Holy Grail. This might be uh, the most well-known battle in the entire Old Testament. But what we need to learn from this story is that it's not meant to tell us what to do. This story illustrates perfectly how we must patiently wait and trust in what God is going to do. Um, I'll also throw out here as a disclaimer, um, I didn't want to cheat earlier in the week, and uh, as I was writing my sermon earlier in the week, I was, I was writing out my notes and my thoughts, and as I'm writing them out, I'm beginning to think to myself, why does all this sound so familiar to me? 
It's because I was beginning to write a sermon almost identical to one that I preached a couple of years ago. And I'm like, is it plagiarism if I use my own stuff? (laughs) Of course not. So if any of this sounds familiar to those of you who've been with us for a while, good. It means you were paying attention then and you're paying attention now. So let's begin with instructions given to Joshua. And then the response of Joshua to those instructions. So this angel of the Lord appears to Joshua and he gives him odd instructions. He does not tell him how to attack the city. What he tells him is, Joshua, here's what I want you to do. On seven straight days, I want you guys to march in circles around the city. You're going to have priests that are blowing ram's horns. Everybody's going to be silent. They're going to be carrying the Ark of the Covenant with everyone following after. And you're just going to do laps. And then on the seventh day, instead of walking around once, you're going to walk around seven times. And then on that seventh time, the priests are going to blow the ram's horns super loud. And then everyone is going to shout with a mighty shout. Something I think my kids are very good at, shouting with a mighty shout. So everyone then shouts with a mighty shout, and the walls will fall. Imagine if you are Joshua in this scenario. Remember, this is the beginning of Joshua's career as the leader of Israel. This would be his very first military conquest. So he's been witness to a a lot of different things that the Lord has already done. He has seen miracles that God has performed. He's watched as Moses has led the people in incredible conquest in the past. And so now it's his turn to command the troops. So what's the strategy going to be? Are we going to breach the wall? Are we going to climb over it? Are we going to find a a secret entrance? Are we going to send in a Trojan donkey? What are the five easy steps I need to follow to do this? Okay, what checklist, perhaps, do I need? Nope. Walk in circles. Imagine how Joshua must have felt as he explained this strategy, this battle plan, to the commanders of Israel's army. As he's explaining this to the people. All right, so here's what we're going to do, everybody. Here's how this is going to go down. We're going to take a week, and we're going to walk. We're going to just walk in circles around the city. And then we're going to yell really, really loud. Again, this is the first conquest for Joshua. So you can imagine that there are people who are listening to Josh, talking about the plan, and they're like, is this guy nuts? Is he crazy? Is this really what we're going to do? If there was ever going to be a time for Joshua to prove his military prowess, now would have been the perfect time. The city of Jericho was the most insurmountable city in all of Canaan. Now would have been the perfect time to come up with a great battle plan. At the beginning of his career, this would have been the sensible time to prove to the people, I can lead you to victory. Over this impossible foe. But God had other plans. This was not the time for Joshua to prove his prowess. This would be the time for Joshua to prove his trust in God. So what did Joshua do? Pretty much nothing. He didn't have to do almost anything except for obediently walk in circles. Because that's what God told him to do. The first victory of his career, and what would become known as the most well-known, famous victory of his career, was one that he had nothing to do with at all. So, here's point number one. The Christian life is not primarily about our action. It is primarily about our trust. The Christian life is not primarily about our action. It is primarily about our trust. See, it's significant that God made Joshua start his career in, in this specific way. Because for the rest of his life, for the rest of his time as leader of Israel, Joshua would not trust in himself, but rather in God. 
He started him out with the right foundation. After this victory, he would know for sure, it's not about my skill, it's not about my prowess, it's not about my military brilliance, it is about obedience and trust. And so then that could become the foundation for every decision that he would make in the rest of his life. God was setting the tone for the rest of Joshua's leadership. Even in the name that he was given, we see this. The the name Joshua means the Lord saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So even in saying his own name, he is saying it's about God. It's not about me. Every time he says his name, it's a reminder to himself and to everyone else that it's God. And and, and this is a theme that we see throughout the entire Bible. God tells this same story over and over and over and over. In the same way that God did this for Joshua, he's done the very same thing in the lives of every single character in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Take the story of Noah's Ark. God gives very strange instructions to a man living in the middle of a desert. Build a giant boat, and in doing so, you will be saved. The smart thing to do would not be to build a boat. Noah trusts and obeys, and thus is saved. God makes a promise to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, through your offspring, the entire world will be blessed. Through your offspring, every other nation in the world will know me. But then he follows that instruction by telling him to take that one son that he's been blessed with and to sacrifice him on a mountain. Odd, strange instructions. But what does Abraham do? He trusts and he obeys. Take Joshua's predecessor, Moses. They're they're stranded in front of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army coming to kill them. And what does God command Moses to do? Just lift your hands over the sea. Just raise them up, and I'm going to split the sea in half. And now, he tells Joshua, just walk in circles. Just walk in circles. Every single one of these stories, he's telling the people the same thing. He's telling them, you will find freedom when you trust in me rather than relying on yourself and on your own abilities. See, we constantly live in fear of being good enough, right? We constantly live in fear and in insecurity. And part of the the DIY pressure that has been put onto the Christian life is the idea that victories and blessings will happen when you just have enough faith. When you do this right, and if something doesn't go the way that you want it, if your prayer is not answered with a yes, surely it must mean you didn't have enough faith. You didn't pray the prayer enough. Maybe you have some unrepented sin in your life. Maybe you didn't pray in the right order or use the right words. You didn't pray the prayer of Jabez. You didn't sing good, good father enough times in a row. Maybe you missed your quiet time three times this week. Maybe you're looking at the five spiritual disciplines that we're covering and you go, ah, I was supposed to pray three times a day. I only did it once. I'm supposed to read and meditate on scripture. I've missed the last four days. Ah, now what? Oh no, I looked at my phone before I read the Bible. Now God's not going to bless me. Now God is not going to give me the things that I feel like I deserve. We become programmed to think that Christianity is formulaic. Do the right stuff in the right way with the right amount of faith and God just has to bless you, right? And if he doesn't, well then you probably did it wrong. But that's not how this works. That is not how this works. I don't think I have this on a slide, but but write this down. Christianity is not formulaic. Christianity is Christocentric. Christianity is not formulaic. Christianity is Christocentric. That means it's all about Jesus. It's about Christ. Our faith is not about what we do. 
our faith is about what Christ has done and is continuing to do in us and through us. The truth is, though, we hate instructions like this. We hate being told it's not about you or what you do. We hate being told it's about what God does. Because our immediate response is, well, no, I, I have to do something, right? I've got I to earn something. I've I got to play a part, don't I? But it's not about what we do. It's about what he has done. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying that we don't have a part to play. We, we do. There are commands that we must follow, and we must be obedient. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But what I'm saying is that our action is a response to God. Our action doesn't formulaically make God move. We don't do Christian things so that God will do whatever we ask. We don't do these disciplines as a form of rubbing the lamp so that the genie will give us what we ask for. God is not an ATM that spits out blessings when we put the proper code in. God is a father who leads his children and asks them to obey. We've talked many times here in church about prayer. People often say, I don't know how to pray. Or, Or they communicate a fear of doing it right. And just those words illustrate exactly what we're talking about here because there's no such thing as a formula for the right way to pray. There aren't words that you have to use. There's no magic formula. You don't have to speak in King James English or use big theological terms or say God's name every three or four words. You don't have to sound super spiritual or quote the Bible word for word or or anything like that. You just have to have a conversation. If you know how to have a conversation with other people, you know how to pray. It's that simple. Christianity is not about checklists. It's about pursuing intimacy with God. So, point number two. Trust naturally leads to obedience. The trust comes first, and then that naturally leads to obedience. So like I said, the fact that we trust in God doesn't mean that we just sit on our hands and do absolutely nothing. Remember, in this passage, God gave the Israelites instructions on what to do albeit very odd, very strange instructions. But he instructs Joshua, and Joshua instructs the people, and then the people obey. Again, in the end of chapter 5 here, we have the commander of the army of the Lord coming to him and telling him exactly what to do. And in chapter 6, the Lord is speaking and says, I've already given you victory. Now, the victory hasn't happened yet, but he starts off in his instructions by saying, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. He starts out by saying, Look, we win. All right? Let's start there. We win. The victory is already assured. Trust me. Now, here's what I want you to do. And he gives him these instructions for the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant and blowing ram's horns, and the people following in silence, and then on the seventh day doing it seven times. So he gives them the instructions. And then, verse 6 of chapter 6, it says that Joshua called the priest, and he begins to relay the instructions to them. And then in verse 8, it says Joshua commanded the people. So Joshua receives the instructions. He trusts in what the Lord has said. Look, I've got the victory. It's already won. Now here's what I want you to do. And so then Joshua addresses the priest. He addresses the people and he says, All right, here's what we're going to do. Something very important here needs to be noted about faith. What exactly do we mean when we say the word faith? Because faith and obedience are intrinsically connected. They are tied 
together. You can't separate the two. Faith is always a response to the leading of God. Faith is not something that we originate in ourselves. Here's an example. If I were to stand up here and say to you, listen everybody, I have great faith in God. I believe in his his word. I believe that he is powerful. God controls the weather and I have faith in him. So I have faith that God is going to prevent any rain from falling in the next six weeks. And so I'm going to pray that there will be a drought for the next six weeks. And you know what? We're all going to do this together. We're going to pray. We're going to fast. And together, through our shared faith, we will see this happen. We're going to trust that God is able and we're going to show faith in him and the victory will be given to us. You know what? That's not faith. And we may have seen examples like this in many contexts, in in many churches where similar things might be said. But that is not faith. That is idiotic. It's just dumb. That would be me in my own efforts coming up with how God's hand is going to move. And how we are going to perform all the correct rituals and the right formula to make it happen. And, And I can promise you, we would not see a six-week drought. I promise you, it would not happen. What would happen is that at some point, it's going to start raining, and as soon as it's pouring outside, I'm going to stand up here and lament that one of y'all didn't show enough faith. I know I did. I'm the one who stood up here boldly and proclaimed it, but some of you guys didn't have enough faith or believe hard enough And God didn't answer our prayer. Now on the other hand, if for some reason God had clearly communicated to us, not that this would ever happen, okay, but just follow the analogy. If God somehow clearly communicated that he was going to prevent any rain for the next six weeks and that we needed to pray in that direction... And I stood before you and I was like, look, guys, God has clearly spoken. And and here's the evidence. God has spoken and said, it's not going to rain and we just have to pray in that direction. Then that would be faith. Because we're responding to the leading of God. Faith is always a response to the leading of God. It is never a method to just get whatever we want. Faith is never, I want something bad enough, so I'm going to believe hard enough, and God just has to give it to me. That's not how it works. God speaks first, we trust, we obey, and then God does what he said he would do. That's what we find in this passage. God speaks. God leads. God comes to Joshua and he says, I've already given the victory, and here's what I want you to do. And in response, they obey. Even though the command makes no sense whatsoever, it is the craziest strategy you could possibly come up with. Yet they obey anyway, because trust leads to obedience. Point number three. Obedience does not lead to control. And that is where we desperately want it to go. We desperately want it to go in that direction, but it doesn't. With a a DIY mindset, we use obedience and action as a way to trust in ourselves. Doing it the right way. Because down deep, whether we realize it or not, we believe that our effort is what's going to save us or help us. We as people naturally crave control. We crave to have our hands moving everything. When things are out of our control, completely outside of us, it forces us to trust in something outside of ourselves. And that is really, really hard. We're accustomed especially in this country, to earn everything that we want. To achieve, to be go-getters. 
The, the American dream is based on that mindset. You work hard enough and you can get whatever you set your mind to. We tell our children really dumb things like, you can be whatever you want. No, you can't. <laughs> that is not realistic. You can't just be whatever you want. You will end up being the best you can be if you trust and obey, and God's going to reveal what exactly that will be. But I don't care how much you set your mind to something that's not meant to be. It'll never happen. This is what happens when we treat spiritual disciplines like a checklist. It becomes all about our effort. And when it's all about our effort, what it feeds is our pride. It feeds our pride. It's a way for us to maintain control of our spiritual lives. It it turns our spiritual lives into something that we can easily manage. Think, for example, about a battle with sin. I'm sure for all of us there are certain sins that come to our mind that that we really struggle with. Things that we wish were not in our lives. We want to sin less, right? We want to take these besetting sins and, and move them aside. Well, it's easy for us to take spiritual disciplines and treat them like a formula for defeating sin. Okay, if I do these things and I do them well enough, uh, I'll beat sin. But listen, the result of a spiritually disciplined life is more victory over sin. But it's not a formula for us to get there. If we're pursuing the Lord, if we're filling our hearts with Him, if we're uh, setting our minds on the goal of, I just want to be closer to Christ. I want to do whatever I can to fill myself with more of Him. The natural result is going to be that as light pushes out darkness, there's going to be no room in our hearts for that stuff, and we'll struggle with it less. But there's absolutely not going to be a life over sin, where we're just saying, okay, these are the things that I'll do and check off the list and then I'll win. Because if we do that, maybe we do better for a while. Maybe we go longer without going into these sins. But eventually you fall again. And when that happens, that's when we start thinking, man, I was doing so good with my spiritual disciplines and and then I sinned in this way again. It, It must not be working this must not be working here's the thing it's not supposed to be working spiritual disciplines are about being specifically being closer to god in relationship christianity is entirely unique in that we do not earn anything at all we are not in control Christianity is always about trusting in God and not trusting in ourselves. And our obedience to God does not give us control no matter how badly we want it to. As a matter of fact, there are times when God leads us on purpose into situations to remind us that we're not in control at all. Never were in the first place. There are times that God will lead us into impossible situations. As a reminder, you got to trust me because you can't get over that wall. That, that's, that's what we have here in Jericho. When the people were standing in front of the walls of Jericho, they knew as well as anybody else that it was impossible. When this land was first spied out by the spies of Israel... Most of the spies came back and said, uh, yeah, we got to go. The people are giants. The walls are how many feet thick. They have grapes that are as big as our heads. We're going to lose. There were only two people that came back and said, God will give us the victory. The people know this is impossible. The walls of Jericho are so thick that people have apartments built into the wall. The wall doubles not only as protection, but also apartment housing because it's so thick. That's overwhelming. And this was a brand new generation of Israelites. 
In the previous chapter, we learned that most of the people who left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea had died in the wilderness during the decades of wandering because of their lack of faith. This group of Israelites that's standing in front of Jericho was made up of the children of those Israelites that had been born in the desert. And so this was the place that God was going to show this new group how to trust Him. He had shown that in the lives of their parents. He would shown how they were not in control. In chapter 15, we would read that these new Israelites celebrated the Passover outside Jericho. They celebrated there how God passed over them in the sacrificial lamb. And now God is going to show them another tangible reminder of salvation by bringing down the walls. God does the same thing with us at times. He leads us into situations where we're completely out of control. Where we are overwhelmed by giant menacing walls that cast dark shadows and block out the sun. And what are we to do in those times? We are to walk in the shadow and listen to the trumpets. Walk in the shadow and listen to the trumpets. You'll notice here that several times ram's horns are mentioned. Here in chapter 6, when the Lord is giving instructions, in verse 4 he says, Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns, Before the ark. Verse 5 When you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall will fall flat. Take up the ark of the covenant, let seven seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns. So Joshua commands the people, he commands the priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns. Follow this into verse uh, 15. Where it says, on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day, marched around seven times. And the seventh time when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout. So over and over and over, reference is made to the ram's horns. The ram's horns are being blown as the people are walking around the city. Specifically, what this is referring to is a shofar. Perhaps you've seen a picture of a shofar. It's a, it's a horn made out of a ram's horn. It's an instrument horn made out of a ram's horn. The word horn there. Shofars were blown to announce God's presence. We, we read about this in the book of Deuteronomy, that the purpose of these things were to announce the presence of God. They were used to declare worship. What they were was an audio cue of the power of God. So the ram's horn was not just an instrument, it was an announcement. God is here, and he is to be honored and feared. At Mount Sinai, God announced his presence with thunder, with earthquakes, and loud trumpet blasts. At the return of Jesus one day, when he comes back, his return will be announced with trumpet blasts heard worldwide. And here in this passage, the priests are blowing these trumpets for a whole week before the victory ever comes. The reason is because these trumpet blasts are signaling the presence of God before announcing the victory of God. Perhaps in this season of life, you may be in a place where you feel completely overwhelmed. Where you feel out of control. If you are there, all you can do is you keep walking in the shadow and you focus on the trumpets. Point four. Everything is always about Jesus. As always, everything is about Jesus. At the root, the the battle of Jericho is not really about Joshua or the people or anything else. At the root, it's about Jesus. Taken in the context of the entire Bible, this points forward 
to Christ. Just as there was no way for the Israelites to enter into the promised land on their own, there is no way for us to enter in to eternal freedom on our own either. These people had to trust in God to remove the impassable barrier, a giant wall. And we have to trust in God to remove the impassable barrier of our own sin. It was not by works that the Israelites were saved. It was by trust. God was their only way to enter into the promise. And the same would be true of their time in the land once Jericho was over. They would have to continue to trust in God. Our salvation, our sanctification are the same way. We have to trust in Christ's power alone to save us. And we have to trust in Jesus every single day as we battle against the sins that try to bring us back into slavery. Salvation and sanctification are not by our strength. They are by God's strength and God's alone. We have to trust in Him. And that trust will then lead us to obey Him. But that obedience will not lead to control, it will lead to Christ. And so when we look at these spiritual disciplines in this series, in in the five spiritual disciplines that I uploaded in that graphic onto our Facebook page, when we look at those things, we have to look at them with the right mindset and for the right reason. That they're not ways for us to earn our way closer to God. They're not ways for us to earn His favor. They're not ways for us to get what we want. They're not ways for us to defeat any type of sin. They are simply ways for us to pursue closeness with God. And if that is our goal, intimacy with the Lord, full of His presence, all the other things will follow. Seek First, the kingdom of God. And all these other things will be added unto you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you that you have given us the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live that truth. God, help us to remember that our lives are not about our effort. Lord, that we would not feed into our own pride by trying to do things ourselves. Instead, Lord, I pray that you would help us to pursue closeness with you by whatever means necessary. And that with the right attitude, with the right mindset, with the right motivation, we wouldn't look at these disciplines as things to check off a list or rules to get us a better life. But that we would simply... Look at them as ways to facilitate closeness with you. God, now as we close in worship, I pray that we would offer our hearts to you, that you would meet us in the words that we sing, and that you would draw us closer to your love. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, we will close in our final song.